This podcast was recorded on December 9th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are broadcasting from the Double Line offices and we have a rare treat where we actually have our podcast guest at the Double Line office. And so today's guest is none other than Jared Dillon. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, what's up? Oh man, we're just doing well. Sorry that, uh, you know, we had, a, we had to call an audible here. As I was telling Jared, we were trying to record this a few weeks ago, and somehow I ended up with the chicken pox. So because uh, we're doing video, I was embarrassed of what I look like as a grown man with chicken pox. <laughs> um, but more. And then secondly, uh, you know, we, we tried to uh, have this with our videographer, and it turns out that one of his assistants got COVID a couple of days ago. So um, despite all of these trials and tribulations, here we are with none other than Jared Dillon. So thank you again for your dedication and coming into our office, Jared. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So for those of you who don't know, Jared, here we're just talking about this, the superstar Jared Dillon. He's the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. Uh, he sends out a daily market newsletter for investment professionals. Um, and he's been doing this uh, continuously since 2008. Um, if you go back to Jared's career, um, he's done a lot of things out there, you know, from being a market maker um, out here in Cali on the options exchange. Um, he was a trader at Lehman, has great stories about all this. Um, whether that's index ARB, ETF pricing, and just how, how to really put that together. And so on top of that, uh, Jared is also a nationally syndicated radio show host uh, where he talks about topics on, on personal finance. Uh, he has all, uh, all these open lines for listeners to, to call in. And more importantly, I think I'm more impressed with also his uh, playlist he puts together and his DJ skills. Uh, what is it? DJ Stochastic? Yep, that's right. Right. So a, a man after my heart using nerdy math names as his DJ name. So um, that's why you're here. So awesome, Jared. So th thanks again for coming in. Let's just start with a little bit of background. I gave everyone a cursory glimpse into it. Why don't you walk us through to how you got to where you're at today and what, what led you down the path to, to be a writer uh, in addition to uh, th those uh, sharp DJ skills? Well, you know, I started out in the Coast Guard. Uh, I went to the Coast Guard Academy and I graduated and I was an officer, went to sea for a couple of years, uh, did some intelligence work and decided to get out and work on Wall Street. I got my MBA from University of San Francisco, started at Lehman in 2001. As you said, I was uh, was on the floor of the Picos for a little over a year. Um, so when I was at Lehman, you know, Lehman was an, an incredible place to work. Uh, it's it really there was something magical about it. Um, it's too bad that it's gone while I was there. So I was, I did index arb for the first three years and I was made head of the ETF desk in 2004. And the instructions I was given was to market the business. My job wasn't even really so much as being a trader. It was being a marketer and how to increase the profile of the business. 
know, at the time, uh, the ETF business was very small. It made about 20 million bucks a year. We were ranked about eighth in terms of the market share rankings. So my plan for this was to write market commentary and write Bloomberg messages and send them out and attract a following. And, you know, I did that every day for four years. And uh, my distribution list got bigger and bigger and bigger. I had thousands of people on it. And, you know, at the end, we'd gone from 20 million in revenue to 90 million in revenue. I mean, it just grew, it just exploded, uh, mostly as a result of just writing. So while all this was going on, I said, you know, I could, uh, I found trading to be really stressful and I had a number of personal challenges and I said, I need to get out of this business and I want to, I want to be a full-time writer and I love writing about markets and did a lot of research on starting a newsletter. And when Lehman went bankrupt in 2008, I walked out the door. Uh, I turned down an offer to stay at Barclays and that's when I started the Daily Dirt Nap. Well, where'd you go with the name, the Daily Dirt Nap? So when I was on the Pecos uh, out in, in San Francisco in like 99, um, there was, you know, the market makers there had this whole language. They had this whole lexicon of things they used to say. And dirt nap was the term they used for any time the stock market was going down. So they'd be standing there, you know, with the trading smocks on and they'd be looking at the screens and they'd be like, dude, the spoos are taking a hella dirt nap. And they yeah, just said, you're in San nap. Fran, you, you got to drop the hella in there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, I just, I just kind of adopted it and I brought it back to New York and then it became the title of my newsletter. So now, like it's everywhere on the East coast. Like people say it all the time, like the market's taking a dirt nap. So, yeah. So um, yeah, I, I like the interjection of Hella. I, I think Sam used it the other day. He, he was, uh, he spent some time in the Bay too. And uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. I, and I remember when I went to college, I went inland uh, over in Stockton, but they, they, they kind of adopt that lexicon, like you said, and there was this very religious woman there and she always called it Hecka. Because uh, hella to her was a, was a bad word, so uh, that was one. I was like, no, 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 you can't adopt that one too. So, um, so you write a lot about talking about um, you know kind of money flows and sentiment in the market, right? And you know, sentiment being a kind of large narrative. What, what are you seeing and talking to your subscribers? And you know, what do you what are you reading from sentiment today? It seems like we went from this kind of very oversaturated highly liquid or high levels of liquidity infusion of capital whether that you know comes from the fed you know the fiscal authorities to there seems to be a little bit of a shift there and so i'm curious what you're seeing out there with when you when you listen to investor sentiment today well a couple things uh, just in no particular order um you know we we had a we had a small correction in the market uh last week uh, it, it lasted for a couple of weeks um, and one of the things that I noticed about that correction is that we were having really high amounts of volatility with the market pretty much at all time highs. Yeah. You know, the VIX got up to about 37. You had a lot of realized volatility. Uh, you had some pretty violent moves. Uh, and there was a lot of dispersion um, between the big cap tech and some of the smaller names. So some really crazy stuff happening. And, you know, I, I started trading in 1999, really like during the dot com bubble. And that's what it was like back then. You had a lot of volatility with the NASDAQ above 5,000, close to the all-time highs. So it always kind of makes me nervous when you have that level of volatility on the highs. 
Now, with regard to sentiment around inflation, you know, I tweeted uh, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, and I said that the moment that the Fed admits that inflation is not transitory is the moment that it will be transitory. Okay, so I mean, they capitulated, right? It was it was capitulation. Um, you know, they watched CPI go to six point two percent, and they finally admitted that it wasn't transitory. And my guess in what we've seen, I mean, you know, Fed funds futures have been getting killed. Uh, we're now pricing in three to four rate hikes in 2022, which, by the way, I believe will happen. There are a lot of people that are skeptical of that. Uh, and they're betting, no, they're, you know, they say they'll only hike, you know, once or not at all. I actually think we will get those rate hikes. Um, so I actually, you know, I think inflation is going to moderate a little bit. Um you know, I, I would probably I would, not in tomorrow's print, right? That we get tomorrow. I think the yeah, street expectations are six, seven, I think is what we're seeing out there too. Um, in that, but, but you're talking about moderation over this kind of, you know, 2022, potentially 2023, or when you say moderate, uh, moderate, are you thinking like Jay Powell, who's going to say, well, you know, transitory, it doesn't mean that word doesn't mean what you think it means. Right. You know, well, I mean, it's, you know, there's a bunch of things like, you know, commodities are start, you know, starting to act a little bad. Um, I, I just, you know, I think it's possible that inflation could peak in the short term. When I say the short term in 2022, you know, with a six handle, maybe a seven handle. But I think it's also possible that we could get CPI back down to four or five next year. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as the Fed gets more aggressive and we're going to, yeah. we're going to see them start to get more aggressive. Yeah. So as you, as you think about that aggression, the, the thing we're trying to square around here and, you know, we've been talking about this in, in our macro meetings, uh, we, we had a long discussion about it yesterday was, you know, how, what do you think the impact is from the Fed accelerating the taper? Um, and you know, the, the market has talked about, I mean, Powell, once again, kind of let it slip that they're thinking about doing it quicker. Um, the expectation now, at least amongst economists, is that they're going to unwind additional $30 billion a month starting January and February, because I think they have to announce both, because I think the Fed means too late in January. Um, so they have to do both Jan and Feb. And, you know, can we take that? And I, and I know, you know, I know you've been writing about inflation for a while and, and the Fed being a bit behind the curve. But isn't that a pretty rapid pace that we're going to unwind all of these kind of purchase programs? Again, not unwind from a standpoint of unwinding the balance sheet, but we're going to slow this down to no purchases within five months. That, that's half of the speed of where we did, you know, through the last episode. And so do you think that becomes a little problematic for the market or has the volatility we've seen in treasuries, especially on the front of the curve, really just reflecting that and getting into what you're talking about, the Fed funds futures pricing in three, potentially four hikes next year? Well, there's a lot there. Um, I do think that they will wrap up the taper by about March. Uh, I think the first rate hike will probably be in May. Uh, I, th- I think it's going to happen. Um, in terms of the impact of the taper, you know, I mean, you're talking to a guy, I'm 47. So, you know, I was around, you know, I was trading in 2002, three, four, five, when we used to get like, 50 basis point surprise rate hikes. You know, I mean, on the like, squawk box, right? They, they never yeah. telegraphed. They just came across a box and you're like, yeah. what? Yeah. So, I mean, now, the, now the, so the question is, you know, can the market handle it is kind of a complicated one. 
you know, back 20 years ago, the market was accustomed to those types of unpredict unpredictable moves out of the Fed. Today, it's not. They give forward guidance out for two years. They tell you what you're, they're going to do two years in advance. So, but I do, I, I, you know, I do think the market's going to handle it, but there's going to be, there's going to be a lot more volatility. Like I think what we saw over the last couple of weeks is going to be present for most of 2022. Um, yeah. I mean, you're looking at a, you know, an equity market that is going to have 20 in the VIX as a floor. Um, and it's going to spend a lot of time in the high twenties and low thirties. So, I mean, is that a good time? Is that, is that a good thing? I, I think of when you, you had that elevated vol, I mean, it sounds to me that that's like a rife environment for like cover call type of strategies, right? For those that want to be a little bit long, augment something. Um, again, just trying to pick into your brain, how, how do you take advantage of that, you know, kind of newfound level of VIX volatility? Or do you even care uh, about that? And you just kind of look elsewhere to find the dispersion you're talking about? Well, one of the things that you saw a couple of weeks ago is that the index got very expensive. Like for people were going for protection in the S&P and the NASDAQ and, you know, the index got very expensive. I mean, look like- When you when, say index, you're talking about index volatility, right? Index, yeah, yeah. yeah index yeah. volatility, yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a quant. I'm not really like a vol expert. I did trade options for a while. But you know, just from a from a you know from an investor standpoint, you generally want to buy volatility when it's cheap, and you want to sell it when it's expensive. So you can sort of build strategies around that. Okay. So one of the things that yeah you, you've been writing about, and we just talked touched on a little bit here as well, is just investor sentiment. Um, you know, just the role of psychology in uh, in investor behavior, and one of the things that we've really took notice of in the last, let's call it 18 to 24 months, is just the, the rise of retail traders and just really bringing a, a different type of uh, risk tolerance alongside with them. Um, the, the tolerance for, for uh, moonshots, you know, getting the, the five times, you know, eight times type of return, but willing to accept that zero alongside, you know, zero return on there. How much of that do you think has played into some of the volatility that you're seeing and, and expecting for for 2022, as we start to unwind some of this uh, this this monetary policy that's been in place uh, for the better part of that time as well. Well, you know, the way I look at it, I look at it in terms of positioning. Um, you know, what's funny about the crypto world is that in crypto they have hodl, right? Like, you know, whether it's hang on for dear life or you know hold <laughs> spell backwards or whatever, but. The funny thing about that is that that philosophy that people applied to Bitcoin has been applied to stocks as well. And, you know, a lot of the chatter I hear from some of these retail traders is you just never sell. Right. So we have, you know, what we saw a couple of weeks ago was, I mean, we had a 4% drawdown in the index and everybody bought the dip and people's cost basis on some of these big cap tech names whether it's Tesla or Apple or Microsoft or something like that, their cost basis is so low that, you know, if, if, they, if they're up a thousand percent and then they're up 800%, they don't care. Like, so it really, the, the market really has to pull back a lot, like significantly more than 10 or 15% before people start liquidating this, some of this stuff. I mean, people, people have very strong hands. 
Yeah, the diamond hands, as Sam calls them, you know, he's the one that taught me that phrase, uh, albeit way too late. We didn't even know. Uh, you know it's, it's after we got some of those peak prices, we learned about the diamond hands. But, um, you know, we've you know, the, the jury's out on whether this prevalence of retail is a positive or a negative thing for the markets. Um, I kind of lay in the camp that it's more it's definitely at the margin a little more positive because we have a cohort of investors that just weren't really participating in the markets. And, you know, you can argue that some of them only participate in the crypto side or whatever, but how do you view, view this rise of the retail community? And is it, uh, in your view, is it a positive? Is it a negative? Is it a wash? Um, you know, people used to always joke about the the retail money being the, the, the not so smart money, right? The institutional people were smart money, but I was like, has anyone ever talked to a consultant or institutional client? Well, guess what? They are comprised of people. They have emotions. They do the same things. And so, you know, what you find in the retail community seems to be prevalent on the institutional side as well. So um, unpackage that. And, and what do you think about the, uh, the, the retail, the rise of retail? So I, I have some pretty strong feelings about that. So if you go back like four or five years ago, back to 2016, 17, you know, people weren't trading back then. They were investing. The big thing was passive, right? The rise of passive investing in Vanguard going over $5 trillion in assets, right? Like that was the big thing. Every, everybody was a Vanguard investor. They were doing passive. Passive became 50% of AUM. People were talking about how it was like market socialism and stuff like that. And the funny thing is, is that nobody talks about that anymore. Like the, 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 whole, the whole passive thing just totally went away. And people opened millions of Robinhood accounts and with free commissions just started ripping stocks. You know, so like, like we've, we just moved on from the passive. Now, the interesting thing about that is, you know, people got upset about that passive movement four or five years ago. But if you think about it, investors were actually doing the right thing. You know, they were investing long term. They weren't picking stocks. They weren't underperforming the market. They were dollar cost averaging. Like they were doing exactly what they were supposed to. And then a couple of years later, they just forgot. And now they're trading GameStop and AMC and crypto and stuff like that. So, you know, I view a lot of what's happened in the last one or two years with retail investing. I view it very negatively. I mean, maybe it's recreational. I mean, if, if you say to yourself, like, OK, like, you know, I want to punt stocks around or I want to punt crypto around and, you know, just gamble a little bit. I mean, that, you know, a little bit of speculation is healthy. But I don't think everybody views it that way. I think people view it as a way to get rich and a way to not work and a way to stay at home. I mean, you hear all this stuff about people quitting their jobs and day trading like that's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, I, I like to remind people, as someone reminded me at our sales retreat last week, you know, when you when you talk about trying to get rich, um, 50 Cent said the last part of that is or die trying. So uh, be careful. <laughs> be careful on the on the other side of that equation. So. You know, we're talking about the, the the rise of the retail too, and and that, that's what I say. I'm on the fence about this as well because it is the behavior. But what do you think is fueling this market today? I mean, the Fed gets a bad rap. You know, you you see all these congressional testimonies right now where they're blaming the fiscal policies of driving inflation today. But you know, you look at valuation, CAPE ratios are you know only the second highest in history. So good news is that they still run, move to run relative to the tech wreck uh, we saw. Um, what do you feel about the equity market? What's fueling this? And is it just going to be noise and the hodls and the buy the dips? The DCAs are going to win, 
Or is there really some fear out there that, you know, uh, investors have kind of misplaced given how strong performance has been across almost all asset classes? So I'm going to give you kind of a macro answer to that. And I kind of alluded to it earlier when we were talking about the Fed. You know, I think I think 2022 is going to be a very challenging year. And you asked me if the market could handle the rate hikes or, you know, the, the tapering. And I mean, ultimately, it's I think maybe not, you know, like over the course of 2022, if we completely eliminate the asset purchases and we hike Fed funds to one, one and a quarter, something like that. Uh, my prediction is that the yield curve is going to be pretty flat. I think that's kind of everybody's prediction. I don't think anybody thinks that long rates are going up. So if you have a flat yield curve or an inverted yield curve and no more QE, then what happens? You know. So uh, and and the other part of this, which people well, then also I, about let me let me interject there. So the thing that we've been talking about here is that well, is it the fiscal side? Yeah. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, we have midterms coming up in 2022. It, uh, you know, everything all else equal, if everything stays the same over the next 11 months, I mean, we're going to have a Republican Congress and Senate. Yeah. We're going to have a Republican House and Senate. And the model for this is what happened in 1994 and 2010. You know, in 1994, Clinton's midterms, then Obama's midterms, you had these huge Republican wipeouts. Yep. And then you had six years of austerity during both Clinton and Obama. I mean, you know, during the financial crisis, the budget deficit got to $1.8 trillion, and then it went down to $435 billion, which was like 2% of GDP. I mean, we, it, that was, you know, we really cut the deficit. So that could happen in 2022. So if you take away the monetary stimulus and you take away the fiscal stimulus, what next? Yeah, and that's one of the things too. I mean, up until now we didn't really mention it, but just some of the the driver, you know, some of the strength that we saw out of uh, 2020 and into this year is just fiscal stimulus into um, <clears throat> with money into people's pockets, right? That's really, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that probably had a, a large impact, especially on the retail side, on on the newer entrants into the market, getting this money, and then you know, with the technological advancements and just the availability of brokerage. Uh, online brokerages for these for these individuals being able to to pump um, some cash into into some of these stocks there. But uh, you know, since we're talking about some of the fiscal deficit and ballooning debt, I mean, what is the you know, given the level of uh, debt levels that we're at today, especially relative to GDP? I mean, we're 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 at times that you know we're at levels where we haven't seen debt to GDP ratios since World War II. Um, it was a much different type of economy back then. Uh, what is what are your thoughts around the absorption of some of the supply that's been going out? How do we wind down this this debt to this debt level, this federal debt level that we have here in the U.S. and you know in other uh, developed market countries, or or do we? I mean, what's the end game around some of this uh, rising debt? I mean, theoretically, if we started now, if we had the political will to reduce the debt, if we started now, we could do it in twenty or thirty years. And we could go from 130% debt to GDP to about 50 or 60% of debt to GDP if we were committed to doing it. Now, the funny thing is, is that, you know, I remember when I was a kid, this was like 1983, I was in fourth grade, okay? And we used to have these current events things in my fourth grade class. 
And every week we would have these current events film strips and all they could talk about was the deficit. And at the time Reagan was president and we had $180 billion deficit, which was about five or 6% of GDP. And people were, people were freaking out about the deficit. So, you know, George H.W. Bush was forced to raise taxes and Bill Clinton campaigned on reducing the deficit. And then we ran a surplus in 2000. But right. Well, didn't didn't H.W., didn't he call it voodoo economics when he was running the primaries against Reagan, right? So Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but the point is, is that the political will to reduce the deficit in the 80s and 90s was there. Now, nobody cares. Nobody cares. There's no, like, if you, if you look at a pure Gallup poll of, like, all the issues that people are voting on, whether it's crime or the economy or it, the debt does not even make the list. Like no, people don't see how it affects them in their personal lives. And, you know, you, you could make the argument today, if you had a politician that was articulate enough, they could say, this is, you know, the inflation that we are experiencing right now is how this affects your personal life. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think people are too focused on whether to wear a mask or not. Right. There's, there's some other things that have that risen <laughs> in, 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 uh, in that polarity there. So you talk about the deficit and this like political wherewithal or lack thereof. Um, you know, I look at the economy right now and all I see is negative real yields everywhere. Right. With this inflationary component. So, you know, the, the argument always in, in, in the government is that, you know, we're going to grow our way out of it. Right. That's what help. That's how the CBO rationalizes a lot of these these budget plans that we put out there. But, you know, historically, you know, the old joke I, I like to use is that, you know, you get about half the benefit the government promised you and it costs two X. Right. So you never quite get there. But when I look across the environment, I look at, you know, tips yields like on the long bond, they're negative 100 basis points. I look at the real funds rate, you know, Fed funds is roughly zero today. Um, you put on inflation, pick your favorite number now. It's at least six and a half, let's call it, right? So look how negative that real yield curve is. So, you know, this is where you should be taking on that level of debt. And we're seeing that somewhat in the corporate space, right? We've seen that. But there's been a little bit of reluctance to really pile it on massively. And so... Is that something that we're potentially missing at this point is that, you know, there could be this new wave of capbacks and M&A that come from, you know, corporate America because cost of funds not only nominally is cheap, but on a real basis, I mean, is ridiculously cheap. It's Jimmy Carter cheap, as, as we've been saying around here. What do you think about that, that, that kind of concept? I don't have a complete answer for that, but. I can tell you that it's my personal opinion that negative real rates are the worst things in the world. And if you look at a chart of real rates over time, the, the periods in history when we've had negative real rates have been the worst. It's been the worst times in history. And if you have negative 6% real rates, that means that a project that has a return of negative 2% is profitable, <laughs> yeah, which, right. which, which means you're destroying capital. You know, right. that's that's the distortions that are created by these negative real rates. Right. That's so, the NPV problem. Right. From business school. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't have an answer to that question. I really don't. I, I mean, the, the thing with, you know, you, you have Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the administration that believe that, sure, rates are low. We should be issuing as, as much debt as possible. And there's a lot of people who believe that 
the aggregate level of debt is actually causing rates to go down more. So I don't, I think this ends in a supernova. Like, I don't know how this ends. Yeah. Well, um, you know, maybe it's like the old song, maybe it's a champagne supernova in the sky, right? You know, so um, <laughs> it feels like it with the punch bowl and everything. So uh, let, let's step back in all of this too. And so, you know, we're talking about some of the challenges out there. What are some of the risks you've been identifying out there to investors where you think they should tread lightly? And, you know, I, I'm not talking about the blatant ones where, you know, it's Chinese real estate or, you know, the regulation on tax stocks. But what are some of the things, you know, with your experience and, you know, what you're watching out there that you think are some of the kind of hidden risk out there that people should be more cognizant of today? Um, you know, I focus on sentiment. Okay, so one of the things I was warning people about in the newsletter uh, about a month ago was that sentiment in energy was getting too hot. It was getting really, really hot. Um, and people had, you know, there was a lot of people who, you know, bought the lows in 2020 when oil went negative. They rode it all the way up and they were taking a lot of victory laps. And I said, this is a problem. And then you know, WTI goes from 85 to 63, like on a frozen road. So that's, you know, I'm being the sentiment guy, I kind of look out for when sentiment gets very hot or cold for opportunities. What are some of the other markets that you're seeing some uh, overheated uh, sentiment, perhaps, and where are some of the opportunities? Well, um, one of the areas where sentiment is very negative is EM. And I've been trying to think a lot about EM in the last couple of weeks. Um, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, the politics in some of, you know, they used to call them the BRICS back in 2000, but, you know, the politics in some of the BRICS is, it, it is making some of these countries uninvestable. But on the other hand, when something gets to the point where it's uninvestable, it's usually a, a pretty good trade. So, so. Uh, another thing you've uh, spoken about, um, you know, and it's a completely very popular thematic concept is this one of ESG, the environmental and social and governance being a prominent part of the investment thesis. Uh, maybe you could elucidate our listeners and our viewers out there on how uh, Mr. Dillon thinks about, um, you know, the, uh, the ESG movement here. So I actually developed a theory on this in the newsletter, and I wrote about it in Bloomberg Opinion. Um, it, I, I'll Later on, I'll show you the article because I wanted to get it on the internet, uh, like on the record, but I called it the, the theory of constraints, okay? So let's say you have two portfolio managers, and one of them is unconstrained, and they can invest in anything. They don't have any limitations. And the other portfolio manager has constraints. They, they, they can't invest in tobacco stocks and weapon stocks and energy stocks and stuff like that. Well, the problem is, is that how can you possibly expect a portfolio manager with constraints to outperform a portfolio manager without constraints over time, over some long period of time? And the stocks that have constraints on them must offer a higher rate of return in order to induce the unconstrained investors to buy them. And that's, that's exactly what happened in 2020 with energy. It's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it in tobacco stocks as well, too. I mean, some of the best performing stocks out there. And so, 
Um, you know, is it the role of capitalism to try to help with these movements or does it really come down to, as you just said, at the end of the day, it's an IRR or it's an above average return or there's some in incremental uh, premium that you're getting paid for it. Um, and, you know, you can fix it on the back end. I, th I think I've read you saying that before that instead of, you know, trying to do social causes, why not make more money, build up the nest egg and be more of a philanthropist over time. So maybe I'm, I'm leading the witness here, but, um, you know, how do you think about that? Well, one of the nice things about the ESG movement is that it didn't come from government, okay? Like when, when we were divesting coal and natural gas and oil, it, it wasn't coming from the government. This was a private sector phenomenon and said we were going to starve these entities of capital, right? Now that had consequences and some of them were unintended but it was it, it was led by the market, which I think is actually a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got some guys banging on my roof right now, putting in the, the solar panels as well. So I'm concerned about being out here in California with all these blackouts and everything we have. So, um, again, I'm trying to do it for the greater good, but also for a self-serving reason. But I hate when the power goes out. Um, so let's think about positioning, too. Um, what, what are you kind of recommending now to your, your clients out there today? Um, you know, are people too long positions and, and you're, you're thinking about something else? Like what, what comes out in, in Jared's recommendation of, of trying to capture the opportunity set? Um, is it dry powders? You talk about some of this vol coming together. Is it, you know, using some sort of uh, bonds or bond-like proxies to offset some of that? Uh, what are you thinking about? Well, really the problem comes down to asset allocation, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the typical individual investors asset allocation, it's 80% stocks, 90% stocks, 100% stocks. It's kind of hard to justify investing in treasuries at one and a half percent or corporates at three and a half percent. It just doesn't make any sense. So people are doing it, but they have these asset allocations that are very heavily weighted towards equities, which makes them vulnerable to a bear market. So what I've been trying to get people to do I called this the awesome portfolio, which is kind of a stupid name, but that's what I call no, it. No, I didn't sign me up. I mean, I want the awesome portfolio. I don't want the crappy portfolio. I want the awesome portfolio, right? Yeah. So the awesome portfolio is 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% cash, 20% gold, and 20% real estate. If you take this portfolio and, and, and if you allocate this, if let's say you did VTI for stocks, okay, and AGG for Bonds. So you're just using broad index just broad ETFs index. out there. Yeah, yep. yeah. If you did this since 1971, over the last 50 years, this portfolio has returned 8.2% annually with half the volatility of the S&P. So, sorry, not, not the S&P, but an 80-20 portfolio. So you're getting almost the return of the index with half the volatility of an 80-20 portfolio. And the max drawdown of this portfolio in the last 50 years is 9.2% in 2008. Yeah, and um, I have my compliance guys sitting here just staring at me very, very vehemently. So we're going to tell of our, all of our listeners that past performance is not indicative of future <laughs> returns. And, you know, anything that Jared advises you is probably going to lose you a lot of money. So, uh, you know, uh, he, he's now chuckling a little bit, so that's good. So uh, we, we, you know, we, we keep a compliance friendly environment, but no, I mean, it's pretty amazing because, you know, you're talking about volatility and drawdowns 
And when you have this kind of bull market runs, people are like, yeah, but that's just stupid. What, what, what am I going to do with that? I just want to make 20, 30, 40% a year. And so I think that's where you, you get that kind of sentiment indicator too. So is the sentiment also driving this thing about, you know, how rich some of the valuations are in the space? And, you know, does that lead it or is this just the awesome portfolio is just so awesome that it's an evergreen idea? Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. And what I'm going to say is, is that in this environment, all people care about is returns, what returns the most. But you have to care about risk. Now, you get these stupid financial publications that every once in a while say, why do people invest in hedge funds? They return less than the S&P. Well, it's because... If, if you're a wealthy investor, you don't just care about returns, you care about risk, you care about your max drawdown. And, and the reason that matters is because if you have a big drawdown, that affects your psychology. So if you take a 30% hit, then you're likely to panic and liquidate at the worst possible times. If you can stay invested in something that doesn't give you that volatility, that gives you, you know, a very small drawdown here and there, then you can stay invested and keep compounding over time. Yeah. And we know the most powerful force in all of the so in all of the physical sciences is compounding. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, Jared, we're running out of time here, um, but I want to give you a last chance to give me what's the most topical thing that's on the top of your mind right now that as you leave here and you're going to go have hors d'oeuvres and cocktails with your with your subscribers. What are you what are you going to press on to them today? And that's one key takeaway that they should take away from our episode. Well, I think looking at looking ahead, um, I, th I think it's the Fed. And I think it's the Fed getting aggressive in 2022. And I think it is inflation moderating somewhat. And I think that 2022 is going to be very choppy for stocks. Okay. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Um, you know, the, his clients are going to hear it in about an hour. So uh, we, we got that for Sherman Show listeners. Unfortunately, uh, our release calendar puts this out in about a week. So uh, it'll be stale by then. So uh, we're not going to front run your subscribers out there on, on this knowledge. <laughs> there. So, uh, Jared, I really appreciate you taking time working throughout my schedule with my childhood disease. I just got um, and, you know, coming into our office. It's great to see you. But before we let you go. I want to first give you the opportunity. How, how can people follow the work you do? Uh, I know I follow you on Twitter. I get, I get a lot of your emails out there. What's the best way to get into your writings and, and the stuff you put out in the world? Uh, best thing to do is to subscribe to the Daily Dirt Nap. You can go to dailydirtnap.com. There's a button that says subscribe. You can send me an email. Uh, you can sign up that way. Um, I also have a podcast. It's more of a personal finance podcast. It's called the Be Smart Podcast. So you can check that out. They're pretty short episodes, about 12 to 15 minutes. Uh, very well done. And, uh, and also, my, uh, you know, I'm an editorial columnist. I write for Bloomberg. So I publish pieces on Bloomberg Opinion periodically. All right. So uh, be smart. Buy the awesome portfolio. And, um, you know, just uh, stay fully invested all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. well, and, it does have 20 percent cash in it <laughs> yeah and also well that's still an investment right if that's your investment objective that you're fully invested however um you know also uh, you're, you're not here selling yourself where do they get some of your playlists for dj stochastic yeah so uh i have a website it's djstochastic.com most of my music is on soundcloud 
uh, and I'm stochastic DJ stochastic on SoundCloud. So soundcloud.com forward slash DJ stochastic. I also do events in New York city about three or four times a year. The next one is going to be on April 1st at do supper club. Just keep an eye on my Twitter feed. I'll be tweeting about that. You can come to the next party. All right, right on April fool's day. What better way to get together? Uh, here's some good tunes that are spun by you. And, um, you know, obviously, we're going to talk some finance on the side. So thanks again, Jared. However, before we let you leave the confines of the Double Line office, we've got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam, take it away. All right, Jared. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman. Uh, to which I hope to elicit the top of mind yet concise uh, response. So to kind of give you the example, I'll throw one out to Sherman first with yield curve. Flattening like a pancake. Uh, for you, Jared, there's going to be 10 bagger. <laughs> we never... read your stuff. That, that's, your, that's your most recent letter as of today. Yeah, I've, yeah. Uh, I've, I've yet to get a 10 bagger without leverage in my entire life. Ah, <laughs> so, I personally got my first one in 2021 um, of something I owned. And let's just say it's not what you think, but I, I contend it got caught up in the meme craze because it went up 5x in two days to which. I ran to compliance, asked to sell, and I said, I know nothing about this talk except I want out. Yeah, and I'm like, I know nothing. I could tend to, and they're like, obviously, you know nothing. You never buy stocks that go up a lot. So, <laughs> All right, this one back to you, Sherman, with rate hikes. I'm going to fade Jared here, and I'm going to say two hikes next year uh, because I think it's going to be problematic. However, I agree with the entire thesis of inflation being there, but I think it's going to cause a little bit of problems with the taper. I think they're going to hike, but I think they're going to be a little more patient, and I think they're going to go back to this kind of quarterly hiking schedule. So maybe we get to three. Again, I'm not here to insult him. He has a chance to refute it and rebut it, uh, but I, I kind of like fading a little bit of that. Uh, I think the curve's a little too aggressive on the pricing today. All but right. who the hell is excited about a 69 basis point two year, right? Even if I'm right, that's what I'm saying. If I'm right and we're fading the curve and it rallies to 50, okay, I get a 20 basis point move. I make my carry all in. I'll be lucky to get like 95 basis points total return over the year. whoop dee do right? Especially with inflation. So um, although I like the concept, uh, not something I recommend putting money in. All right. Back over to you, Jared, with uh, demand destruction. Uh, I, I actually think that a, a lot of people say, how are rate hikes going to fix the supply chain crisis? And I say, actually, rate hikes really do fix the supply chain crisis because I believe that most of the supply chain crisis is demand driven. I think most of it is driven by demand. So throw a couple of rate hikes in there, tighten monetary policy. I think that reduces demand and I think things ease up. Yeah. I, I, I was telling one of our portfolio managers that, you know, because that, that, that contention was thrown around. And I said, yeah, rate hikes could cure it. Raise, high, raise rates 500 basis points. There's going to be a huge bid for money market. <laughs> right. That demand goes away all of a sudden. Right. You're like five percent of my money. 
Uh, I think a lot of us have a lot of 5% risk-free assets we'd like to deploy. So again, you destroy the market, you destroy some other parts, but um, you know, possible, but not plausible, right? All right, back to you, Sherman, with pricing power. Better to have it than not to. Uh, Jared, maximum employment. Uh, 3.5%. Unemployment sure. rate, right? That's what you're yep. saying? Yeah. It seems uh, right. That's where we were last time, right? Yep. That's where we got to, yeah. Right there, yeah. Back to you, Sherman, with, uh, let's see here, monetary policy error. I'm trying to think of a good one word response here, but um, it's ongoing. I, I think, you know, what we've done since the GFC, I, I try to come up with some great answer there, but you could have just said cliche. Ooh, ooh, that's very good. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the policy we've been pursuing with QE and, and what Jared's talking about, you know, is, is been a problematic. And like you look at GDP growth, it's all been driven by debt. And, you know, is that healthy? No, but, um, you know, all in all, um, I, I think that, you know, we've gotten used to the monetary policy errors. I think, you know, as much QE as we've done in 2021, I think we should have dialed, throttled it back a lot sooner. I'd really seen a smoother path to it. But, you know, again, um, 900 PhDs in, in, in the Fed and they're no better forecasting than any of us. So my diatribe is over, Sam. All right. I'm going to kick it back to Jared then with the persistence of mean meme stunks. <laughs> uh, I would not be long any meme stonks in 2022. All right. And then- uh, he, he didn't say to short him. <laughs> say to short him. That's a tough game. All right, Sherman, metaverse. I'm just living in this universe and I don't understand the metaverse, <laughs> man. You know, um, it's just beyond me, but um, we'll figure it out. I, I feel like, you know, the metaverse is, is really an extension of what we're doing today. Zoom, Teams, you know, all of these technologies. It's kind of what it is, but, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I have trouble forking over my hard-earned cash to, to buy some uh, digital land next to Snoop Dogg out there, which I saw was going for like a million bucks or something, which is crazy. Million seems cheap on some of these other uh, bids that people have been doing. Yeah, I'll take some California coastal real estate at a million bucks uh, undeveloped uh, in the Malibu area. If, if, if I was, I'd rather, I'd prefer that, let's say. Yeah, I think uh, we're getting one close, one step closer to your vision of the metaverse here with, uh, I, I think they're talking about putting avatars out for all of our employees here in case they don't want to pop up in real life, so up your avatar. We'll see what, how, how ours look, right? I can't, I can't wait to see what they do to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, and then we're, let's close up shop here, Jared, with the last one to you for uh, tyranny of the mid curve. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a meme that's been going around for a while. Um, the high IQ people and the low IQ people will understand a concept, and the people in the middle uh, don't. Um, that's actually, you know, it's funny because. It's it's actually it's actually true. It's actually true, you know. So, yeah. Well, no one wants to hear that, right? Um, it always reminds me of the whole. Um, what was the example of Lake Wobegon, right, where everybody's above average? 
which uh, by, by definition can never happen, right? So uh, I, I think the only time I've ever exhibit, I've ever seen that people think that they're all above average is if you ask them about their driving skills, right? And um, I'll be the first to admit, I'm definitely not an above average driver. I try to tend into it and keep, just try to be good enough, right? Good enough to not hit anybody and not get hit, right? So um, anyway, um, you can see we're in the random mode today, Jared. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. This is Jared Dillian, uh, Daily Dirt Nap. Um, you know, again, uh, you can check out his website, dailydirtnap.com. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, Jared, what's your Twitter handle? At Daily Dirt Nap. There you go. I mean, you got the market cornered in Daily Dirt Nap. So yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, if you guys want to see what we look like here in the office today, you could have caught this episode on, on our YouTube channel youtube.com backslash double line capital all one word in there uh you can also uh, catch our our podcast on soundcloud stitcher google play itunes some other things i have no idea about um our, our pr folks keep us going there and more importantly you can see uh sam's moonlighting gig that he does weekly he's going to record that uh tomorrow on his monday morning minutes that they do after the bell every Friday and they release before the open on Monday where they cover all things macroeconomic and markets, uh, giving you a quick recap. Lastly, don't forget on the YouTube channel, you can look at our channel 11, which is hosted by portfolio manager Ken Shinoda. Um, great stuff out there, content. That's a monthly publication out there. So subscribe. You can get us on the Twitterverse. Um, are we in the metaverse yet? It's, Twitter's not there. That's Facebook, right, Sam? I, I don't even know. Yeah. Okay, so our tweeter, our tweeter's yeah. at Sherman Show Pod. We don't have the market cornered in, in Sherman shows out there. There happens to be another uh, cartoon out there. So, um, you know, we're, we're not, as, not as talented as Jared when it comes to getting that. So uh, appreciate everyone for listening. Stay tuned. We'll see you in 2022. Uh, we'll talk about the beginning of markets and our outlooks on the first podcast of 2022. Once again, thanks to our guest, Jared Dillian. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. Bye-bye. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.